This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm your host, Norman B. Coming up in the second half of the show, we're going to talk about new discoveries in how birds talk, work, play, parrot, and think with Jennifer Ackerman. Her book is titled The Bird Way. New discoveries have found out how birds conduct their lives, how they communicate, how they breed, and how they survive. Now this is a fascinating conversation and I don't want you to miss one moment. First, my guest is Chuck Collins. He has a novel, which is kind of interesting because he's kind of not known for novels and we're going to get into that in a moment. The title of the novel is Altar to an Erupting Sun. Chuck Collins, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I, I sort of preface this by saying that you're not really known for writing novels, but it turns out you've written a very, very interesting novel, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading, and I want to get right into that. But before we go any further, perhaps you can tell my listeners what you are best known for. Yeah, actually, for for a couple decades, I've written a lot about a, a lot of nonfiction books about economic inequality and the you know the sort of growing concentration of wealth and power. Uh, the most recent book I wrote is about how the ultra rich hide their money, uh, how they hire uh, you know tax attorneys and wealth managers to sort of move their money to the shadows and create trusts. Um, so I'm mostly interested in those topics. Um, so yeah, Norman, this is my first fictional foray, but um, I have been working on trying to be a good storyteller, yes. even in my nonfiction writing. And uh, so that that part is consistent. Well, I'm going to congratulate you, Chuck. You are an excellent storyteller. I've read your nonfiction work and I've thoroughly enjoyed reading Alter to an Erupting Sun. And I'm going to let my listeners know and I'm going to let you know that the beginning of the book, the first few pages in your book, take me in a direction that I didn't think I was going to go in. I make a I make a sort of a habit of not reading very much of the PR material that the PR people send me, even though I'm sure that's well, anyway, I, I, I try to sort of like make my own mind up about what I'm reading as I'm reading. Having said that, you took me in a direction that was far away from what the glimpse I had of the PR blurb. And I've found that fascinating and i'm i'm curious to know and we want to get into this i'm curious to know was that something you consciously decided to do because because you sort of turn you you take me in and then you all of a sudden you go like that you, you take a different direction and it's fascinating it's and it really it's very intriguing can you talk about that yeah um and it's, it's not a spoiler alert to your listeners to um to to describe that um you know, I've I, I tell the story about a, a woman named Ray Kelleher, a fictional woman who's a lifelong activist. Uh, she's kind of the life of the party. Uh, but as she approaches her 70th birthday, she's staring down a terminal illness. She she knows she doesn't have to long long to live. And so she uh, decides to take her own life and the life of the CEO of a fossil fuel company who she holds responsible for delaying society's response to climate change. 
Uh, and she is a lifelong nonviolent activist, but she uh, engages in this shocking act. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's a, a provocative beginning. I think it I hope it kind of grabs people and engages people and invites the question, well, why did she do this? And is, you know, what was the blowback from doing that? And that's part of what the book explores. Yes. And then you go in, we then sort of trace uh, Ray's life. You go back in time and we we go through so much of her life. And this is where I found it. The whole book is really interesting, Chuck, and, 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 and so well done. But this is where I found it so fascinating. I'm wondering because I... I feel like I know that person. I know Ray. I know I'm almost like, like I've met her on a couple of occasions and I get the feeling that you have as well. And I'm wondering, did you base Ray on a sort of an amalgam of different people or, or was there one person in your life that you sort of go, yes, this is Ray? You know, there are a couple of people in my life, uh, women who are a little bit older than me, who, like Ray, have uh, been around and, and engaged their whole lives. Um, and I've heard some of them in real life say things like, you know, if I were facing terminal illness, I might consider this action, some action like that. And that really sparked me uh, into thinking, well, you know, to explore that in a fictional way, because actually, personally, I think it's a bad idea. It's sort of a uh, strategically and morally a bad idea for somebody to kill another person in what, uh, you know, in, in, in their, in their, because of their political beliefs or actions, but it was intriguing. And these were, these are women that I respect. So, so yeah, Ray Kelleher is kind of a composite of, of traits and characteristics of other people I've known, uh, but she's an entirely fictional creation. Now, here's something which may seem, Chuck, just like a sort of a, a minute detail, but I'm curious to know about names, about Ray and about Reggie Donovan, her husband. I'm I'm curious to know about how how you selected those names, because names are so incredibly important. Yet at the other at the other hand, their names. I mean, we you know, their names. So what's it for you? What's important to you about Ray's name and Reggie's name? Can you explain that? Well, that is a good question. You know, I didn't necessarily want to use uh, common names. There's another character in the book who's, whose name is Alex, yes. a female character, A-L-I-X, uh, who, you know, I don't know that many Alexes. I, 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 in a way, I wanted Reggie Donovan to be uh, Mr. Dorchester, Massachusetts. You know, he really... Uh, came from a particular community and context, a sort of Irish Catholic labor family. Yes. Uh, I've known a lot of Reggie Donovans. Yes. Uh, Ray is kind of unusual in that she's from the Midwest. And uh, Ray is a nickname for Ruth Ann. Ah, and all her yes. all her family called her Ray, R-A, Ray. Uh, and like, uh, I have a little sister who I named, kind of similar to the way, uh, you know, I named her a name that's been her lifelong name, but isn't her name. So it's often that you have siblings naming their siblings, uh, the name that sticks. Yes. So that was the case of Ray Kelleher. Yes. Um, but yeah, I, I I picked names that weren't necessarily names that were in my immediate circle, too. Isn't it interesting, Chuck, and, and this is a sort of a side note here, that how a name in a book works 
so incredibly well. I mean, for instance, we're, here we have Ray, and I can't imagine this character being any other name. I'm glad you feel that way, Norm, because, uh, yeah, I sort of have that. And and, and she, she becomes, you know, as a writer, she's become a very real uh, person, I think. And I almost talk about, I, I've differentiated it. What does Ray think as different than, say, what I think? Um, she's, uh, you know, first of all, I'm, I grew up male, so I'm yeah. writing about a female character, but I'm also, uh, reading about somebody who has a lot of very different characteristics for me. Um, I often find myself talking to people that Ray believes it's a Dietrich Bonhoeffer moment in the fight to save the earth as if that's different than what I might think. And it is. Yes. 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 So let's get into the crux of the of the matter of the story, which is here we are in 2023 and you don't need me and my audience certainly doesn't need me to go on about what a world we live in right now. My goodness. You've said this book, this novel right now, it's right now, but then we go then we go to 2030. I, well, of course, I need to know why did you set it right now? But it's so crucial that you set it right now with what is going on, because this book focuses in on one, on death, the environment, uh, 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 big corporations, so many different things are so crucial to where we are right this moment. You make some very important points in your book, and I, I, I kind of feel like I know sort of the answers to some of these questions but overall chuck i'm wondering when you set out to write alter to an erupting sun was your intention to make just really landmark points or, or did it evolve as you started to write well this is where you know i my my own experience is i'm kind of a campaigner and an activist i'm i i not i don't aspire to identify as a fiction writer i I've adopted it for the moment, um, but you know I have a, an agenda, if you will, and that that agenda is in this moment to offer up a conversation, a provocative uh, reflection on the moment we're in, and one community's and one person's sort of response to that. Um, so yeah, it, it, and it's funny having the book come out. You know, I live in Vermont, the brave little state of Vermont, where we've just gone through some horrific flooding. Uh, our air has been clouded by forest fires from Canada. Uh, you know, if you're paying at all attention with your heart and mind, you're noticing we're living in a disrupted moment and we're heading into a disrupted future. So how do we face this impossible news uh, of the of of where we're at? You know, what is it? What are we called to do? Yes. And, uh, you know, th there's a lot of inspiring future fiction that looks out ahead 50 years or 100 years or 40 years. Uh, I only look out seven years because this is the critical decade. Uh, we we don't have uh, decades to sort of turn the course and shift our trajectory. We need to start living rather, rather differently immediately. And so, again, the book tries to be somewhat uh, inspiring or, or offer a vision of what it might look like to turn the corner, to live within the Earth's boundaries uh, to focus on the power of the fossil fuel industry. These are all topics that I think are very, very timely. You just said, Chuck, future fiction. And I'm wondering 
if you like that term to classify what you've written and I guess other books, is, is that a, is that a term that you, that you approve of? I, I guess it's more like a label that, that uh, somebody assigned to me more, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I get near, near, near future fiction, near future is fiction yeah. even more accurate. Uh, uh, but it's also historical fiction. Uh, so yeah, I don't really have a tidy label for it, except I think it, you know, to the extent it looks ahead seven years, it builds on some of the trends I see now politically and, and how, for instance, how is it that communities are facing and planning for a disrupted future? What yes. are people doing at the local level, food systems, local economy, mutual aid? Those are all things um, that I think we can, that are happening. And it was fun to sort of imagine them playing out over the next seven years. Uh, of course, it's risky because of, I, I hope to be alive in seven years, and I hope we all, most of us reading that will be alive and able to say, well, uh, you know, the future didn't at all play out the way you envisioned it, but uh, but th those are the risks you take. You know? Yes. <laughs> yes. And as, as I'm reading the book, I can't help but thinking, what was the last news story I heard? What was the last sort of horror of of what's going on in our climate, in our world and, and climate change? And, and then... And then the naysayers, Chuck, then the people that just not only just deny this, but just don't want to have any, any talk, I mean, no, no conversation at all. It's like, this is ridiculous. And it's just make fun of anybody that talks about climate change and global warming and the environment. It, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to speak for you, but I, it just boggles my mind sometimes that, that, even if you even if you're a little sort of skeptical about what's going on, the fact that you deny it totally just seems to be just I don't I mean, I just don't get it at all. Was that something for you again as you're writing the book? Yeah. How much of that was kind of like in your I don't know, in your brain pan that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, it's very much what I feel like we're living with. Yeah. You have people believe that climate change is a hoax. Uh, and actually, Reggie, I'm sorry, Ray Kelleher, Ray, the fictional yeah. Ray Kelleher, has a brother who's kind of like an antagonist. He doesn't share uh, the, the view. Uh, at one point, Ray is in a book club and they read a book about the Dust Bowl of the 1930s, uh, the people who stayed behind in Oklahoma. And she observes, you know, what was interesting was even after 10 years of the 1930s Dust Bowl, there were a lot of people who still adopted a sort of magical thinking view about the causes of the Dust Bowl. <laughs> the, you know, even when, they're, when their farm is consumed with dust, they're believing it's an angry God or a, all they have to do is uh, the power, you know, if only they could think more positively. Uh, so she sort of observes even in the 1930s, there's a segment of the population that is not going to uh, be science-based or reality-based when it comes to understanding what's happening around us yes let me remind my listeners i'm talking to author chuck collins his new book is is a novel it's called altar to an erupting sun i want to get into talking about that title in a moment but i have a question for you about writing the book chuck and and, and that is it's an intriguing story as, as i already said and you take us in a direction which i wasn't expecting but you give us lots of details. You you paint you paint situations so incredibly well. It's very vivid. And I'm I'm curious to know 
in the actual writing process for you, for Chuck Collins, was it enjoyable? Because you're you're talking about something which is deadly serious, yet at the same time, you give us this complex situation, you give us these complex characters, specifically Ray, with with such vibrancy. I get the feeling it must have been in some part just a, just a joy, but maybe joy is the wrong word. So maybe you can explain. You know, it it was joyous. It was a little bit like writing a love letter, uh, a lot kind of a long love letter, but you know, a love letter to fictional characters and to past social movements and even some real living elders or elders in my life and and the and the characters' life that are you know have passed so i i found it flowed out yes uh, and i'm never sure you know i'm not sure that would ever happen again but i'm thankful for the experience it did not it was not a angst filled writer's struggle process right i had the story i had the character and i sat down and you know i spent a couple months writing it just an hour or two every morning before work and uh it it was pleasurable it was also pleasurable not to have to think about footnotes and sources and the kind of things I've had to think about with other books. Uh, although I did a lot of research to try to get the story and the history right. So it was almost entirely pleasurable. Which which you just touched on something, which I was going to ask you about anyway, and that is about uh, the research and the resources and, and, and just doing the background to the story itself. I, I'm presuming that, that you had to do a lot of, you know, going online looking going to libraries i'm not sure how you did it but what but you do give us so much detail and it, it it's all from my perspective it all seems absolutely bona fide it just seems like this is this is real stuff so talk to me about just briefly about about doing the research collating all the information yeah you know um so uh the historical fiction part of it was really ray's life yes yeah. starting in 1973 and uh you know yeah she 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 lives in a community, a kind of a commune in Montague, Massachusetts. She's involved in the Clamshell Alliance, a, a movement to, to stop the construction of a nuclear power plant. She goes on and participates in other actual historical social movements. Now, these are movements I knew something about, yeah. probably dangerously little about. So it was an opportunity to go back and talk to people who lived through those movements and read some of the history and watch some documentaries. Again, that that's like one of those pure pleasurable research projects though. It's just like going down a rabbit hole of curiosity. Yes. Um, so, so um, I enjoyed that part of it. In fact, it, it, I compiled a sort of website resources for, for if somebody's really interested in these characters and these, these movements, the, the living real aspects of it, it's all sort of on a little website where people can, Oh, Sam Lovejoy knocked over a tower in opposition to a nuclear power plant. Well, there happens to be a documentary about that. And if, if for the seriously interested, they can they can also join me in that journey. Yes. Um, so that was part of the fun of it, actually. Chuck, let's quickly talk about the title, because I know I know people are going to ask you about this. And I know my listeners are going to say to me, well, explain the title. So the title Alter to an Erupting Sun. Well, um, there are. The book itself for me is an altar in the, in the way in which you might create an altar of remembrance um, in, you know, think of Day of the Dead or some of the other traditional altars. So 
Uh, the theme of altars flows through the book. It's a way to honor and 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 um, remember those who come before us. Um, and the erupting sun is in part the conditions of the earth. We're living in an overheated world and an overheating planet. The sun is is heating up and erupting. Um, only later did I realize, oh, my main character's name is Ray, like Ray yes. of Sunshine. You know, that was an accident, really, to be honest. But um, so, uh, and I, in a way, the book invites people to say, well, who is on your altar? Uh, what what forces formed you, formed each of us? How do we honor those forces and people and books and ideas? Um, so, yeah, in that sense, altar is uh, like an altar that, where you might light a candle and honor honor a past ancestor. You know, Chuck, and I and I, I I'm sure I'm not alone in thinking this. There is there is a sort of a little sort of hint of religiosity. Is that a word in this? Which leads me to ask you about the big theme that runs through this book, and that's morality. I mean, it's it's really when we come right down to it. This book is about morality and it's about life and death and this terrible act that Ray commits, not just to herself, but to, to, the, to, the, to the corporate whatever he is. Uh, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about morality. It, it, it's, it's something which so many people over the years have written about and struggled with. Did you, Chuck Collins, struggle with the whole concept of morality as you started to get the idea for this book? Yeah, I, I wanted to um, offer a fictional character that really wrestles yes. with what does it mean to live a righteous life in this moment? Um, and, you know, Ray is somebody whose reverence for life is is deep. Uh, you know, she participates in the salamander crossing guards in her town, you know, where in the spring, the salamanders and the wood frogs come down out of the mountain hills and cross over to their vernal pool. She's out on the road with a reflective vest protecting these living creatures. She tries to live in a consistently ethical, moral life right up until her final minutes. And yes. and and. There's a way in which we're all flawed in our wrestling and Ray's flaw becomes the sort of defining definition of how people look at her story. But in fact, her entire life is an experiment. And, and at one point at the end of the book, her husband, Reggie, is sort of talking about her religious shape. He says she was shaped by religious and ethical tradition. She read widely in that. She grew up Roman Catholic. Um but she is more religious than the religious people I know. She's more, you know, trying to honor, you know, he, he goes down the list, welcoming the stranger. Well, we all talk about in the great religious traditions, welcoming the stranger, hospitality, yes, uh, respect for life, uh, nonviolence, uh, seeing the dignity of others, seeing our relationship to nature in a spiritual term. So some ways she's breaking out of the traditional religions and 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 uh, she talks about discipleship, which is a very, you know, Judeo-Christian idea. What f discipleship is, how do we live a moral life? 
And, um, but then an interesting thing happens, which is she comes to believe that there is evil, that, that the, that the owners and leaders of these fossil fuel companies, she would, she, she actually uses the word evil. They actually understand the harms that they're doing. They're like people who would poison the village well, in her words, knowing that children will die. That is, and for her, it becomes a Bonhoeffer moment. So she's yes. she's interested in the German pacifist theologian, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who through his life spoke out against Hitler, literally the day that Hitler was inaugurated in 1933, he was on the radio denouncing the idolatry of Adolf Hitler. And then he made a decision to participate in a plot to assassinate Hitler, uh, which against went against his pacifist uh, tradition and beliefs. And he, of course, the, the plot didn't succeed and he was later executed for that. Yes. Ray, as she comes toward the end of her life, wrestling with what is the ethical thing to do, believes it is a Bonhoeffer moment in the fight to defend the earth that no, we are not all responsible in equal ways for the climate predicament. Some people are way more responsible than others. And then she undertakes this action. Um, but it absolutely is an attempt to, to, to wrestle with what is an ethical life in this moment. Yes. Chuck, in creating this character, Ray, and the other characters in the book, but specifically Ray, at the end of it, after all is said and done, do you like Ray? You know, I I admire Ray. I think Ray would be a hard person to live with. Yeah. A hard person to be married to. Yes. Um, she and I, I kind of show this off that, you know, some people roll their eyes around Ray or she's the person who maybe each of us can identify as, you know, the lifelong activist who just doesn't know when to um, stop haranguing you or whatever. Yes. <laughs> but the one the, 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 the qualities that I admire in Ray is she is the life of the party. She will she remembers your birthday. She will show up at the party with a silly wig. Yeah. She will remember the important anniversaries. She is a weaver of people and movements. So there's there's parts of her that I I aspire to. Don't you have her, her don't you have her husband say at some point I'm, I'm trying to remember now. Don't you have him say it as a line where he says he is the life of the party. I think you say that, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she she is the uh she's uh you know Emma Goldman if I don't want to be in your revolution, if I can't dance, but with silly hats, you know, and, and yeah, he says, Ray is, uh, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the spark, you know, she's just a lively fun and she's the altar builder too. She loves to get people together yes, and, and organize celebration. She, or, you know, she celebrates whatever the holiday is. We're going to have a fiesta, a celebration about that. Yeah. So, um, um, she's in that way we could use a few more rays around to sort of liven things up yes and, I, I, and I, remind I, us of celebration the power of carnival and celebration yes i couldn't agree with you more and as i said at the very beginning i 
I felt like in reading the book, and I still feel like I know Ray, yet at the same time, as you said, I'm not sure I'd want to be married to Ray. I, I, you know, I, yeah, yeah, I know her. I recognize her. I've been around her. I've been at dinner parties with her. You know, I, I've been on protests with her. But I don't know that I'd want to spend 24-7 with her. Yeah, yeah. Chuck, the book is, as I said, I, it, it's it's a fascinating story. You get some incredibly important points across in the book. Do you want people to read An Altar to an Erupting Sun to come away with understanding your message, if you like? Or, or do you? Yes, you're nodding. So I'm, I'm wondering if that's what I'm correct in saying that. Well, yeah, I mean, I. Um... I hope it's a good story. I yeah. hope that it, um, you know, for people of of uh, maybe you're in my generation, there's parts of it that will click and we'll remember uh, and we'll be like, yeah, I was there or I was part of something like that. Or because I do want to honor some of me and my elders and my, my over 60 cohort who have been kind of toiling away, working away, Let's let's remember that and celebrate that. And and maybe things would be even worse if we hadn't, you know. Um, but yeah, I really want people to talk about what is it, what does bold action look like? You know, uh the their the sort of adopted quasi-daughter Alex at one point says, you know, what Ray did was wrong. This is seven years later, she says this. Uh, and she's paid the ultimate price. She had to go to jail simply for giving Ray a ride. Yes. Um, but she says what Ray did is wrong, but what Ray would say is, okay, you don't like what I did. What bold action are you called to, to in this moment to defend the earth? Don't just turn away from what I did. It's a, it's a provocation. It's an invitation. What is it you're going to do? And I think that is part of the conversation. I think it's anticipating that we're kind of in this weird political moment where our political system, the U S Congress is entirely incapable of responding to the urgency of the moment. So then uh, <clears throat> what, what can we do? Where, where do we have some sense of agency? And I think we will see an escalation of tactics and responses, partly coming out of a sense of powerlessness and urgency. We're going to have more bad days. We're going to have more bad climate disruption days in the months and years ahead. And we're going to be like, well, how come the fossil fuel industry is still trying to build new fossil fuel infrastructure? Why are why are why can't we make this transition to a post-carbon economy? Oh, they're using their power to block the way, and that's really the the dilemma that Ray ultimately face sees. She doesn't see a path forward without directly calling to account the leaders of these fossil fuel companies, big oil, big gas, big coal. And she, again, believes they are the incarnation of evil. Now, I don't believe we should, I don't believe assassination or that kind of action will make a difference. But I do think bringing that laser focus to the role of the fossil fuel industry, even in a humorous way, there, <laughs> there was a Guardian article the other day about a weatherman who started to call all these tropical storms naming them after oil companies. Yes. I thought that's brilliant. Yes. Because that gets us to, you know, Norman, you and I, we are responsible. Each of us are responsible in our own way for contributing yes. to this crisis. But 
these corporations have used their power to block alternatives, deny, delay, stall. They have a disproportionate responsibility. So what does that mean for our for what we do? That's that's the discussion I I I've enjoyed having over the last month and a half as this book has been out. Chuck, you said uh, a, a sentence just a, a few words back. You said the bold action to defend our earth. I just made a note of that, and I thought that was just absolutely spot on, so incredibly good. You and I could go on at great length. There's tangents we could go off on here, which would be absolutely fascinating. I'm I'm so interested in talking to you about so many other things that you have written about and that you campaign about. But right now, we're talking about Alter to an Erupting Sun. I'm going to tell you, Chuck, and I'm going to make it very clear to my listeners, I thoroughly enjoyed this book for a number of reasons. One, the way you've written the book. Two, the characters are so believable. And, and three, probably the most important thing, is that you're getting across something which, as you just said, that we need to do something about, to talk about. And I just love that. I think this is just so incredibly important. Just to, just to finish up here, Chuck, when people read your book, do you want them to come away <laughs> writing letters to their senators or their congressmen or, or their local council or whatever? What would you like people to do? Well, I think there's a couple of things we can all do. And part of it is where, where do we have some sense of agency? And I do think where we live, wherever it is, we can help build more healthy communities to face a disrupted future. That starts with getting to know our neighbors, of helping each other out, maybe the small things to start with, uh, pushing the car out of the mud here in Vermont, that's a common one. Um, but you know, beginning the practice of mutual aid, looking at our food systems, looking at our consumption, how do we each individually live in harmony with the earth, live with less, you know, dial down some of the uh, unneeded consumption in our lives? That That's a really good starting point. Then I think we have to look at, we, we can't ignore the larger system drivers. We are all responsible for climate change, but what do we do about the fact that these, these industries have captured our political system? So yeah, definitely write to members of Congress and urge them not to accept money from the fossil fuel industry and urge them not to just do the bidding of these energy companies yes. and vote out vote out the bums who, who are subservient to them. Um, but I think we should be calling our members of Congress to do tribunals. Uh, S Senator Sheldon Whitehouse just did a hearing on the, the dark money that the fossil fuel industry has used to funnel into anti-democracy groups and anti, you know, uh, clean energy groups. Well, that's a fascinating. So we should understand the power of the fossil fuel industry and what it would look like to uh, shift away from their power. So that's that's a definite to do. Um, I'm part of a campaign to discourage the expansion of private jet use in New England. There, there, there's an airport that wants to quadruple its capacity 
for private jets. Now, these are the richest people in the world flying around in private jets. Uh, I'm in my day job, I'm looking at where are these flights going and how long are they? Turns out half of them are under an hour and most of them are going to resorts. So really, so we're going to burn up the earth and triple the capacity of this airport. So wealthy, the wealthiest people on the planet can fly in one hour as opposed to drive in three hours to their getaway resort. You know, that seems like a really bad use of the earth's remaining uh, carbon budget, you know? So, so yeah, finding a place that aligns with your own passion, your own gifts and the, and the, and the needs that we face right now is, is what I hope people will wrestle with. So well said, Chuck. I just want to quote something that you just said. What can we do? Vote out the bums. <laughs> I like that. My guest, Chuck Collins, his novel, it, it's a must read, Altar to an Erupting Sun. Chuck, this has been fun. I, I would like to extend an invitation to you to come back on and talk about so many other things because there is a lot to talk about. This is a terrific read. Thank you so much for being a guest at Life Elsewhere. Norman, thank you for this delightful conversation. And I, I accept your invitation. We can talk about private jets and hidden wealth and all kinds of interesting things together. Yeah, we're going to have to get Chuck Collins back on the show. So much to discuss with him. Great guest. Details and the link to Chuck's book, Alter to an Erupting Sun, are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Still to come, Jennifer Ackerman, author of The Birdway, explains the remarkable intelligence of birds and newly discovered bird behaviors right after this. This is Life Elsewhere, hosted by Norman B. Let us know what you think of our show. Send your comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. The book is called The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent and think by Jennifer Ackerman. Jennifer, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Okay, so the very first thing I've got to tell you is that yesterday afternoon, I was sitting outside in a, in a lovely park that I go to sometimes just to sort of catch up on my reading. And I had your book with me and I was eating an apple. And the next thing I knew, I heard this horribly loud noise over my shoulder, over my right shoulder. And there sitting on the park bench was the biggest, fattest crow you have ever seen. And he was... He was literally almost nudging me with his beak and I was eating my apple and I could see him looking at me eating my apple. And when I finished pretty much down to the core, I swear, Jennifer, he grabbed it. He took it out of my hands. And I'm thinking to myself, Jennifer, must you must know all about this, about crows and other birds that steal. But not only that, that they just like they know what's going on. 
that's my sort of opening to you to ask you what a fascinating subject that you've talked about and how birds look and talk and work and play and parent and think. Talk to me just a little bit, overview, about, about putting this book together. Yeah, your story is a great one. And it's not unique. I have heard of crows doing these kinds of really bold uh, um, uh, thieveries. (laughs) And it's true for gulls, too. They'll steal a sandwich right out of your hand. Oh, yeah. Um, And so, so, you know, some birds are are just not fearful of humans at all. And it's very impressive behavior. Um, so the the bird way is really about the exciting new discoveries in bird science that are that are overturning our old ideas about how birds um, conduct their lives. And you know, we used to think that the the brains of birds were really so small and primitive that they were capable of only instinctive behavior and the very simplest mental processes. And now we understand that that actually a bird's brain is a miracle of miniaturization. It's, you know, dense with neurons, it's super efficient, and it's capable of quite astonishing mental feats. You know, birds can think logically, they can solve problems, they can teach one another new things, they can communicate in ways that resemble language. Yes, that's, I'm glad that you mentioned that because one of the things that I picked up from your book is about the language. And, and it reminded me of being in Australia last year where I heard the sounds, the bird songs of birds I had never heard before. Just the most remarkable sounds. Talk to me about the sounds that they make that, and, and how they communicate and, and what that all means. Yeah, so um, Australia is a is a place of just extraordinary bird vocalization. I went there to research the book, and <laughs> I was completely bowled over yeah. by the the range of vocalizations and the volume. And yes. there there are so many extraordinary um, bird calls and songs in that country. And um, you know, one of the things that we're learning is that birds. Uh, really can convey tremendous amounts of information in their calls and songs. And I think it's one of the exciting new developments. Um, There's a bird in Australia called the New Holland Honey Eater, and it's really um, toppling all of our old ideas about, you know, well, birds can only say so much in in a call or a song. So this bird, when it spots a threat like a hawk, it lets loose with an alarm call that's absolutely packed with information. And so this call, it tells other birds in the area what kind of predator is coming, where it's arriving from, how far away it is, how fast it's flying, when to dive for cover, and even you know when it's safe to come out of hiding again. So what's really cool is that different species of birds understand in detail the honey eater's warning message, and they heed it. So it's like birds can understand foreign languages. And and it really makes you wonder, what are we missing in other bird calls and songs? Yes. You know, this one call has been thoroughly analyzed, but you know there are um, interesting things going on in other species. What a great name for a bird as well, a honey eater. <laughs> I love that. Does it actually, mm. does it actually eat honey? It, yeah, it's a nectar feeder, ah, and okay. um, so yeah, and they're they're very bold little like they're equivalent to our hummingbirds in this country. You know, right. they're very bold uh, birds, and they and they love nectar. 
So now that's led me to something else that I, I really want to find out about and after reading your book, and that is the range of birds that we, we, we have. I mean, I don't know. Do you know how many species of birds there actually are? Well, we, we the counts vary, but we know that there are at least ten thousand five hundred species. Um, they yeah, and they range in size. Um, it, you know, from from the bee hummingbird, which is the smallest bird on the planet, and it weighs just a fraction of an ounce, to you know an ostrich or an emu, you know, which are enormous birds, yes. land birds, yes. and. Um, you know, and they range in physiology too. Some birds are capable of of going down deep diving in the sea. You know, the emperor penguin can go for a uh, a 27 minute dive, and this is an air breathing bird. You know, mm. but it can go underwater for for as long as almost a half an hour. And then you have birds like the the um, bar headed goose that can fly in incredibly thin oxygen at extraordinary altitudes. So the range of physiology is amazing. And then you have this extraordinary range of, of behaviors. There's one part in your book that where you're talking about the speed that birds can fly at. And you told one story uh, about a bird flying at like 60 miles an hour in such a very short period of time. Talk to me about just the, the, the abilities that birds have. It just seems so to us, or to me, it seems so phenomenal, the kind of things that they can do. It really is amazing. And, you know, you think about there's there's speed, and then there's also these incredible long-distance flights that birds yes. do. You know, um, the, the barred-tailed godwit that migrates from, from Alaska to New Zealand, and it does it in a single shot. It's a 7,000-mile flight. Wow. You know, it travels day and night for, for more than a week. And... Um, and then you have the Arctic turn, you know, that, that um, goes from pole to pole in orbit with the seasons, you know, and that's like a round trip flight of, of something like 45,000 miles. It's really amazing. Um, so you've got, yeah, you've got speed, you've got distance and uh, diving ability. It's, you know, birds have it all. It's just so fascinating. Let me remind my listeners, I'm talking to Jennifer Ackerman. Her book is called The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent and think. It seems to me from reading your book that we're discovering all the time, which is a great thing, but there's so much to learn from what birds do and all the things that you say, how they talk, how they work, how they play, how they parent and how they think. We've only just scratched the surface in some respects, haven't we, of, of understanding birds? Absolutely. And I think that's what makes it so thrilling is that, you know, they're just exciting new discoveries taking place every day. And, um, you know, one of the, the very interesting developments, I think, is that we've Ornithologists have mainly focused on um, birds of temperate zones in Europe and North America. That's where most of the research has taken place. Yeah. But there's a whole world of tropical birds and birds in other parts of the, the planet that, that do things very differently. So what we're beginning to understand as scientists focus on, focus on some of those um, tropical species, neotropical species, that... Um, th just whole new ways of doing things. You know, there's, there are birds called the um, called mannequins in the tropics that that mate in this extraordinary way. They they um, a pair of males will do this incredible acrobatic dance together, and only one of the males actually gets to mate with a female. The wow. other one is just a wingman. You know, wow. he's he's just 
performing his heart out with no chance of actually getting a mating, but he, it's a cooperative behavior that, um, that is, you know, very um, puzzling and, and fascinating in these mannequins. Now, I'm glad that you brought up mating because this is something else which I've observed recently. At the local supermarket that I go to has a big parking lot and adjacent to the parking lot is a retention pond. And in this pond or at this pond lives a family of ducks. And quite often the mother duck will parade her little little baby ducks through the parking lot. And she doesn't seem to have any concern about cars or people or anything. And of course, everybody, most people slow down and stop and wait for the mother duck and her little ducklings to pass through. What's going on there with with the mother duck and, and the babies just sort of wandering around wherever they want to go without a, without a care in the world? Does she, is, she, is she just completely oblivious or does she know what's going on? Well, I th- I suspect it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, the the thing about ducks in parks, especially, is that they have acclimated to human activity and cars. You know, a lot of times I see you know duck families crossing the street, and the cars will slow and yeah. stop and let the ducks pass. And you know, ducks are very uh, birds are very observant, so they will you know note. The behaviors around them and, <laughs> yes. and um, you know and conduct themselves accordingly um, so it, and and you know also that she is the the female duck you know she's very focused on getting food for her young and yeah. uh, so she's you know it may look like a negligence to us when she's actually heading in the direction of, of right. some very important Important food source. Well, I started that that little story off by referring to your talking about the, the mating, and the other thing that I've noticed with this duck and the and the male ducks is that they seem to like to perform their mating ritual, and she, he likes to mount her right in front of everyone, and it seems like they almost it's almost like they're putting on a display for everybody. Am I am I just making things up? Just thinking about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think I think maybe we're all, you know, paying more attention. You know, these yeah. birds are probably been the, uh, you know, very frequently. And we're just because, you know, our lives are slowing down. We're beginning to notice things more. And um, but birds do, you know, they they often um, have sex in the open, you know, on a beach or, yeah. um, you know, on a tree limb or something where we can all see. But there's one species that, that's fascinating that's more like humans. They're Arabian babblers, and they actually conceal their sex from other members of their species. And they, it, it, it's a kind of extraordinary uh form of behavior because, you know, we thought that was just typical of humans, but these birds seem to be concerned about the impact of their behavior on um, other members of their species. And they're trying to keep peace in their flocks. So they, the, the, the male and the female will steal off behind a bush and, um, and have sex there. And then they come out as if nothing has happened. Nothing's happening. No. It's fascinating. This book is really fascinating. I'm so glad I got the opportunity to talk to you about it. Now, I now want to turn to something which I've always found fascinating about birds. And that is the relationship to our our ancestors, our animal ancestors, is the, the, the whole story that birds really are dis- descended from, from dinosaurs, their whole makeup, their whole, their whole structure. They're dinosaurs with wings. Talk to me about that, Jennifer. 
Yes. And, and it's, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, birds are dinosaurs. They, um, they're descendants of what are known as pteropod dinosaurs. And, you know, we, we, we just don't think that we have living dinosaurs on the planet with us, but we do in the yes. form of birds. And, you know, they, they have um, evolved over time from these really kind of massive creatures that, um, that were their, their theropod ancestors to birds like the bee hummingbird, you know, this very tiny species of birds. And, and, um, you know, so it's a, it's a, to my mind, just a sort of <laughs> miraculous form of evolution. And uh, you know, while Bert, while we were learning to stand up on two feet, birds were learning to fly. Yes. And you know, while our brains were sorting themselves into cortical layers to generate complex behavior, you know, birds were devising another neural architecture altogether, which is um, different from ours, but very, very efficient. And, um, and as I said, you know, can generate this very complex, thoughtful behavior. You know, as I'm talking to you, and, and after reading your book, there's this, the question that came into my mind, and I hope this doesn't come across as sounding completely naive, but I'm just wondering whether birds are still evolving, whether there's, there's still sort of a because they've they've changed over the over periods of time they've adapted to their situations uh, for different climates and different environments are they still doing that is that because it just seems to me that there's so many of them i i just wonder whether they they've not finished evolving oh i they're absolutely still evolving and in very interesting ways i think and and there's scientists who are actually watching the evolution of some of their their physiological characteristics, but I think they're evolving behavior-wise as well. Oh, yeah. And just as all creatures are, I mean, we're all in a state of flux. We're all um, evolving and adapting to our environments. You know, sometimes it's invisible because it's on a slow geologic scale, but sometimes it happens very quickly. And um, there's scientists I, I, I talk about in the book who are looking at the the behavior of brood parasites. You know, these are birds that lay their nests in the, yes. um, lay their eggs in the nests of other species. And these birds are evolving very rapidly to mimic, for instance, that like a brood parasite chick is evolving to mimic the look and the call of a host chick so that yes. it's not booted out of the nest by the parent. And so, yes, it's happening all around us uh, all the time. Jennifer, it's a fascinating book, and I'm, I'm just wondering, for somebody like yourself that's so into what you're writing about, and uh, you, you've written more books about birds, I'm wondering what, just in this book particularly, what's the big takeaway for you? What's the, what's the one thing that you, you're just, I guess you're so fascinated by that you just want to shout it from the rooftops about the bird way? Well... You know, I think for me, writing this book was a little bit like getting a new pair of binoculars. You know, it just changed the way I see birds. And that's what I'm hoping that after reading my book, this one, um, The Bird Way and The Genius of Birds, that I, I really hope people will come to see the birds around them, the crows, jays, yes. tits, wrens, vultures, sparrows, you know, <laughs> a little differently as yeah. the clever, thoughtful, innovative creatures they are. Yes. Well, I think you've achieved that with your book. And it really is 
an absolutely fascinating book. You know, a delightful guest. Once again, the title of the book, The Bird Way, a new look at how birds talk, work, play, parent and think. My guest has been Jennifer Ackerman. Jennifer, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much. It was a delight. A very large thank you to my guests, Chuck Collins and Jennifer Ackerman. And of course, a big round of applause to you for listening. Details about Chuck and Jennifer's books are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Oh, and a quick reminder that the Life Elsewhere podcast is available at Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. And don't forget, I love to get your feedback about the show. My email address comes up in the closing credits. To take us there... New music from Bristol-based producer and vocalist TLK with A Signal to the Living from her EP Primed for Loss. Till next time, be well, be safe, and you know it makes sense. Be nice. Bye-bye. have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.com. Dot co. That's C O. Mm-hmm.